The world we live in is a terribly depressing place, and it's only getting worse. We are living out Romans 1 every day, and it's hard to be a Christian and see so much depravity and sin being celebrated in every aspect of our lives. You can't watch movies, scroll Facebook, watch the news, or even watch a Disney movie anymore without being bombarded by this cultural revolution going on. Not to mention, life itself isn't easy. Uh, Prices go up, taxes go up, and our income stays about the same. The war on gender and sexuality, this world is becoming more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah. But we don't want to dwell on that. Because while we need to be knowledgeable of the things around us, it only brings us grief and sorrow. Instead, I want to point you toward the source of the believer's joy, our salvation in heaven. We will see today that where we focus our attention matters. And for a Christian, we can have incredible joy right now. All we have to do is look toward the right place, our salvation in heaven. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is writing this letter to people that are being persecuted badly. Their lives were in danger. They were suffering greatly. In Rome, shortly before writing this letter, the Emperor Nero, who was crazier than an outhouse rat or a few sandwiches shy of a picnic, wanted to build some new buildings in town. He wanted to build his own temples and his sporting venues. But there wasn't any open land. Rome was very populated. There were buildings everywhere. And rather than purchase places and and demo them and and build what he wanted, he decided to go in a different direction. He decided he was going to set the city on fire. Well, he ended up burning much more of the area than uh, he initially intended, as fire tends to do. It burned it up, burned up most of the city. And many people lost their homes, their work, uh, the existing... Uh, temples and the existing sporting arenas. And the people of Rome suspected it was Nero. In fact, they started to blame him publicly. And he decided he needed to shift the blame off of himself. I mean, he was a little nuts, but he was not stupid. So he started telling everyone that it was the Christians who did it. They were the ones who set the fire. And this caused the people of Rome, who already didn't didn't like them, even more hatred towards the Christians. And many had to flee for their lives out of the city. So Peter is writing to these Christians who are hated, despised, being persecuted and even killed for their faith. And they had a lot to be upset, sad, and miserable about. But Peter says in verse 6, if you look at it, In this you greatly rejoice, 
And then in the second half of verse 8, it says, You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. The verse says, joy inexpressible. They are being filled with an unspeakable joy. It is beyond words. How and why are these hunted and persecuted Christians to be so joyful? That is the question we need to ask. And the answer we need to know. Because with life already hard and getting harder, with persecution of Christians already happening, and it's only going to get worse, we need to know how we can have that kind of joy. Ask yourselves, do you have inexpressible joy, unspeakable joy? Are we so filled with joy we can't even talk about it? If we don't, then we need to learn how to seek that out. If we do, we will see the source of it today. So today we will see four motivations of joy for the believer. Our first motivation for joy of the believer is a protected inheritance. A protected inheritance. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to go through some of this very quickly. I wish we could spend more time, but we can't. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter introduces us to who he is writing to. He is writing to believers, those chosen of God, regenerated by the Spirit, and they are obedient to Christ. They are scattered throughout the land because of their persecution by the Romans. And now Peter continues in verse 3 with a hymn of praise to God. What is called a doxology. Which is where we will see the first point of our protected inheritance. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we will be focusing our attention here on the phrase to obtain an inheritance. But first it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of our protected inheritance. And why does he provide it for us? Well, according to his great mercy. God genuinely cares 
about our situation and our needs. Mercy and grace, they are very similar and somewhat interchangeable, but grace is more of a a legal term describing what is done for a problem. And grace is the solution for that problem. Sin and grace. Sin is the, the problem and grace is the solution. Mercy is what is given for the symptoms of a problem. And mercy is the solution for those symptoms. So God gives us mercy because we are suffering from the universal problem we all have in sin. And sin causes us many symptoms. Pain, suffering, misery. So he gives us mercy in dealing with them. Now who qualifies for this inheritance? Those who have been born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So those people who are in Christ, who have salvation in Him, those whom are born again will receive this inheritance. Peter explains to his readers, you need to praise God because He has had mercy on you. And through your salvation in Christ, you will receive an inheritance someday. So Peter tells them to have exalted praise for the life yet to come. It is a call to worship the Lord God, who has promised us eternal joy and blessing in the future, in an inheritance to be revealed later. We have a guaranteed, reserved future, eternal life in heaven that God has already established and protected. It is an inheritance. Now, we understand the concept of an inheritance. We understand that an inheritance is something that will go to you in the future. And most inheritances are a joyous thing. You're receiving something. Now, if I were to tell you that I had set aside $50 million for each and every one of you upon my death, I see a lot of smiles. Just the thought of that to come later on would be a joyous thing. You would be happy even though you don't have it now. Your minds would start thinking of what you're going to do about it, what you're going to do with it. It would be an incredible thing. Just the anticipation of receiving this would bring you joy. Now, it might also tempt some of you to make me receive my eternal reward a little quicker. So let's be clear. I don't don't have that kind of money, and I'm not giving that to you. So don't don't knock me off. But in all seriousness, though, the inheritance that we have in heaven is so much greater than money or anything that we have here on this earth. The very real physical presence of God, which is what makes heaven heaven to begin with, we're going to be able to enjoy. All the physical aspects of heaven will be wonderful. The beauty of it, the splendor, 
Many of these things we talked about the last time. So many aspects of heaven itself are pure joy. And just the thought of being able to partake in them. Even just thinking about enjoying them in the future should bring us joy. It's something that we should think on and meditate on. But heaven is also the removal of so many things that cause us sorrow. Sin. A faithful believer is constantly dealing with sin in their life. Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep reacting this way? Even when we are able to properly repent of sin in our lives, we then find something else that we need to deal with. We are sinners. And we need to constantly be dealing with our sin. This is frustrating. And it causes us sorrow. When we do find ways to deal with our sin, we experience joy. When we are living for Christ, rejecting our sinfulness, we get glimpses of the joy of heaven. But there will be a day in the future, in the last time, when we will sin no more. When we remove sin from our life, we remove sorrow. We remove the soul-sucking darkness that keeps us from feeling real joy. So what happens to us when we remove all that sin in our life? Well, we, we fill that void that we have in sin with joy, with righteous joy. Can you imagine a day with no sinful thoughts? With nothing but pure joy? Nothing goes wrong. No sinful thoughts. No bad news. Just pure joy. That's an inheritance we can look forward to. I don't know if we can truly imagine that accurately. Complete and total joy. Even the best day that we've ever had fails in comparison. But now let's look at four reasons why this inheritance, though, that we have, this protected inheritance, why it is that it's protected. 1 Peter 1.4, if you look, describes this inheritance further, saying that we have been born again to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. According to the Apostle Peter, our inheritance is protected by four important qualities. First, our inheritance in Christ is imperishable. What we have in Christ is not subject to corruption or decay. In contrast, everything here on earth is in the process of decaying, rusting, or falling apart. The law of entropy is what that is called, and it started at the fall. It affects our houses, our cars, and even our own bodies. Our treasure in heaven, though, is unaffected by entropy. 
It says in Matthew six nineteen through 20, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Heaven will never get less joyful. It will never degrade or fall apart. It will remain as perfect in 20 million years as it does on the first day. The second quality of our inheritance in Christ is it is undefiled, unspoiled. What we have in Christ is free from anything that would deform, debase, or degrade. Nothing on earth is perfect. Even the most beautiful things in this world are flawed. If we look closely enough, we can always find an imperfection. But Christ is truly perfect. As it describes in Hebrews 7.26, For it was fitting for us to have a much, a such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So our inheritance in him is also holy, blameless, exalted, and pure. No earthly corruption or weakness can touch what God has given to us. Revelation twenty one twenty seven says about the new Jerusalem, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will be no sin in heaven, and nothing unpure can ever come into it and spoil it. The third quality of our inheritance in Christ being protected is it is unfading. What we have in Christ is an enduring possession. Living in this world, it's hard for us to imagine Colors that never fade in the sun. Excitement that never declines. Or value that doesn't depreciate. Our inheritance is not of this world. Its glorious intensity will never diminish or fade. God says, I am making everything new. Isaiah sixty-five seventeen says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. God will create a new heavens and earth for rejoicing and gladness, and it will last forever. The fourth quality of our inheritance in Christ and how it is protected is it is reserved What we have in Christ is being kept for us in heaven. Your crown of glory has your name written on it. And it will be there, reserved for you. Although we enjoy many blessings as children of God here on earth, our true inheritance, our true home is reserved for us in heaven. Like Abraham... We are looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. The Holy Spirit guarantees that we will 
we will receive eternal life in the world to come. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, It was God who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. A pledge of what is to come. In fact, Ephesians 1.13-14 really drives this home. It says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Our inheritance is 100% absolutely guaranteed to be there. Because the Holy Spirit came and sealed us, and we are guaranteed our inheritance through that. So our protected inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's reserved for us. In fact, it is yours already. You just can't have it yet. It's your inheritance. Those of Jewish descent would very much have understood this inheritance. It was a familiar word, and it was used to describe the land of Canaan. Because Canaan was an inheritance that God had promised for the people of Israel. This inheritance of the earthly Israel, this land of Canaan, the promised land, had begun with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. But it wasn't realized for a very long time. There were hundreds of years between the promise of the inheritance and the realization of the inheritance. There were hundreds of years of bondage in Egypt. There were decades of wilderness wanderings in which the whole, gen- whole generations of Jews died. And they led a very troubled life. They suffered until they entered into the inheritance finally. But unlike our heavenly inheritance, their earthly inheritance was not imperishable, undefiled, or unfading. Through their disobedience to God, it was taken from them repeatedly. However, it was reserved for them, and God did give it to them as he promised. And in a very similar fashion, Peter is saying to his readers here, you're like the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt. You're like the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness of the desert. You haven't received your inheritance, but it is reserved for you. And he's calling on these troubled believers who are getting hammered from every side with all of the difficulties that life can throw at them, to forget worrying about their lives right now and patiently wait with hearts full of praise for the best life which is to come in the future. In fact, he is saying that you should be so filled with joy that you should burst spontaneously into praise, that you should join me in this doxology 
of praise for something that you do not now possess. We are children of God and therefore heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Yes, you are waiting to possess your unimaginable eternal inheritance in the future. But we need to have a heavenly mindset and think often about what we have laid up in heaven that is waiting for us. The more we prepare our minds, the more we can focus on our salvation. The more joy that we will have in our life right now. It's like we're in school and we're learning and we're studying and we're shaping our lives into what we will be eventually. Our entire life right now is preparing ourselves for the real life to come. We have no way to fully comprehend it, but we need to get the finest, the purest, the truest, the widest, and the deepest and broadest understanding that we possibly can of it. Because it produces joy in the midst of what we're having to deal with every day. If you live with your eyes set on the life to come, knowing the love of God is all you need, then this life can steal none of your joy. But if you have your eyes set on worldly things around you, even if you have genuine salvation from God, it will steal your joy. Some Christians can go through a miserable life with joy. And others struggle to even have a moment of joy without much trouble. The first has an eternal perspective on life. The other is wrapped up in the world around them. And that world always disappoints. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints? Open the eyes of your heart. We have the ability to change our focus if we are in Christ. If you are in a small square room on top of Pike's Peak and three of the walls have no windows, they're painted black, and one wall has a picture window pointing out over the horizon, are you going to stare at one of the three walls that are black and, and complain about the darkness? Or are you going to look out the window and enjoy that heavenly view? It's our choice on what we focus on. Turn your gaze and look at what God has prepared for you in heaven. 
I've been reading some Puritan authors lately, and this quote by Richard Baxter fit what we are talking about really well. I will say it slow because Puritans are really hard to grasp sometimes. But Oh, that Christians would learn to live with one eye on Christ crucified and the other on his coming glory. If everlasting joys were more in your thoughts, spiritual joys would abound more in your hearts. No wonder you are comfortless when heaven is forgotten, when Christians let fall their heavenly expectations, but heighten their earthly desires. They are preparing themselves for fear and trouble. We need to live with one eye on what Christ did for our salvation and the other on heaven. And that produces joy in our hearts. We can't do much about what the world around us is doing. But we can control what we look at. Dwell on your salvation and heaven. Our second motivation for joy of the believer is a faith assured. A faith assured. Peter continues, after informing us about our precious inheritance, to tell us about the joy of being convicted of our salvation in Christ through trials in our lives. Through trials in our lives. First Peter, starting in verse 6, says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The assurance of our salvation will create joy in a believer's heart. These verses pack a lot of information into them, and we're going to go through them a little by little here to see if we can draw out that understanding. But the focus of this text is around the proof of your faith. And this proof or assurance of your salvation will cause us to have great joy. I think everyone at some point in their Christian walk questions whether or not you're saved or not. Especially early on, when you're being bombarded by sin in your lives, and we repeatedly fail to change it, or we keep finding new sins that we didn't see before. And it can begin to cause you to, to question, are we who we claim to be? Are we really saved? So, if that is you now, take heart, because... We've all been there. And the fact that you are questioning shows that you genuinely care about God. And that you want to be who you claim to be. And that in itself is a sign of a regenerated person. But it's hard to have joy in your salvation if you are questioning your salvation to begin with. I think a lot of people who have trouble enjoying the joy of Christ is because they are unsure or they're questioning their salvation. 
a major contribution to the joy that we feel as Christians is the assurance of our salvation. But where does that assurance of our salvation come from? Well, according to Peter, it comes from the trials in our lives. He says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Trials in our lives like sickness, conflict at work, or conflict in our personal lives, or conflict in our marriage. Those things cause us stress and trouble. Disasters like tornadoes or car accidents or death of people close to us. The great thing, though, about these trials is they usually are, like Peter said, for a little while. Although they may seem daunting and overwhelming and seem like they will never end, in reality, they usually are not that long. And God has a purpose for them. As we said, they produce joy. They produce joy because you come out the other side of the trial with an assurance of your faith that produces joy. Then, even future trials become even easier because you go into them with the knowledge that God will get you through them. You lean on Him more and He comforts you and delivers you through those difficult times. And then you rejoice even more in Him. These various trials in your life are not random. You're not just in the wrong place at the right time. In all of your suffering and trials, God is the gatekeeper. He is the one saying yes or no to trials in your life. Now, it can be tempting to wonder, does God want bad things to happen to me or painful things? God does not desire for you to suffer just like he doesn't approve or ordain of sin. But he does will it to happen. And he uses suffering like he does sin. He guides us through it for his higher purposes. Nothing can happen that God does not allow to happen. But everything happens for a reason. Sometimes... The trials in our lives are our own making because we are being chastised for unrepentant sin in our lives. Regardless, whatever the reason for these trials, all of these things and more cause a Christian to turn to the only comfort that we know, and that's God. It humbles us and it teaches us the limitations of our own abilities. And when we cannot change a trial in our life, when we have no ability to do anything, we turn to God and it humbles us. It reveals our heart though. It shows that we know who is in sovereign charge of all things. And we submit to God to deliver us in our suffering. When we survive the trial and we come out 
with a greater appreciation of God, our salvation, and a more humble heart. God allows us then to go through these things, to be able to test our faith. But he is not testing us to see if our faith is genuine. He already knows. He is testing us so that we know if our faith is genuine. And that produces joy. It produces great joy when we come out and we realize that we truly do trust in God. And I can say with absolute certainty that I thank God for the trials in my life. And with great love and affection, I wish those trial-affirming things on you. Now you may say, please don't do that. Or that's unkind to wish hard things on a person. But it is in fact a kindness of God to give us that assurance of our salvation. And that purifying of our faith that comes through them as well. Another Puritan theologian, Joseph Carroll, wrote this, and I think it's very well written. The greatest thing that we can desire, next to the glory of God, is our own salvation. And the sweetest thing that we can desire is the assurance of our salvation. In this life, we cannot get higher than to be assured of that which in the next life is to be enjoyed. All saints shall enjoy a heaven when they leave this earth. Some saints enjoy a heaven while they are on this earth. When we are assured of our salvation, we can enjoy and look forward to heaven now. And we can do that with great anticipation because we know where we are in Christ. Trials are, in my opinion, one of the greatest gifts that God gives us. And I think it shows it well here because look at what it says in the rest of this verse. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold. Why is the proof of your faith more precious than gold? If you never had trials in your life, If everything goes your way and you never had to be tested in the fire, how do you know your faith is real? It'd be hard to. Because when you go through these trials and you stay on that righteous path, when you turn to God for help and grow closer to Him, you know you are His. You know who you love and who your Savior is. To have these trials is a gift more precious than gold so that you know where you stand and who you stand with. It will either confirm your salvation or if your faith is not real, you will run away from God in the trial. Some people believe That severe trials and persecution steals the joy of a believer. It drags them down to their lowest place. 
But that wasn't the case for Paul. He wrote many uplifting letters to churches from prison. The greatest revivals of history happened during the greatest trials in history. Not a lot of good things come from good times. The bad times, the trials in life, allow people to see the good news. There is more to look at here in this verse. So the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. More precious than gold, which is perishable. So we see here that our faith is more permanent and unfading than gold. When they are trying to get the impurities out of gold, they heat it up. And they burn out all the other things that were left in the gold. And our faith is more pure and more permanent than gold. Even gold is perishable and will not last into eternity. But our faith will. Next to God himself, faith is more permanent and lasting than anything on this earth. It will last for all eternity. That's something to be excited about. The third motivation for joy of the believer is a professed honor. A professed honor. The trials that we go through test us by fire. We are being purified and refined to an outcome. An outcome. The word of God equips us to deal with trials and it shapes our thinking and grows our faith. This faith that is tested by fire is being cleaned, purified, and growing throughout our lives. Again, we are, in a sense, in school, being prepared for our real lives to come, being sanctified, being purified, being redeemed, being readied for a specific purpose. God is refining our faith for a reason. And this reason, Peter says in verse 7, is so that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. (laughs) We are being perfected for a purpose. And in the end, at the revelation, we will stand before Christ perfected. And we will receive praise, glory, and honor from Christ. To receive a well done, good and faithful slave. It somehow doesn't seem right. You want to say, Lord, please, let me give you glory and honor. But that is what Peter is saying. That he will profess honor to us. 
This really makes you think, how can that even happen? Well, it will happen because we will be at that moment in time made in the exact image of Christ. We will be full possessors of the righteousness of Christ, fully endowed with that perfection of body and soul. We will then be worthy of praise and worthy of glory and worthy of honor. This is most likely going to happen at the Bema seat judgment when our works will be judged the good and the bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3 explains this in much more detail, but... The point is that Christ himself is going to praise you for your faith and your good works. He's going to give you the glory and honor. And that is mind-blowing. I don't know of anyone who wouldn't turn three shades of pink just blushing from that one. Other than the fact that we'll be turning green, probably three shades of green as well, because of the missed opportunities and the worthless deeds that are getting burnt up. I think that equals out in a brown color, I think. But but just the thought of receiving that honor from Christ, that should make you glow and joy. Our fourth motivation for joy of the believer is an intimate fellowship. An intimate fellowship. Peter now changes from talking about future things, from this is what your future holds in your inheritance, and God is purifying you in trials for a future reason, to this is where you are now. This is your reality at this moment. It says in verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you have not seen him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The appreciation of our own salvation and the promise of our inheritance in heaven along with the purifying of our faith through trials allows us to do two things two things even though we cannot see Christ love him and believe in him there is some aspect of this that is kind of poetic for Peter to be actually bringing this forward because of the trials that he went through in his life. Now, of course, the love that we're talking about here is an agape love. 
in a present tense, meaning you are loving him constantly by choice. And it expresses the love of the will. And you've chosen to be faithful in loving him. And believing in him or trusting in him. It is more than just belief when it says that here. It's it's believing in Christ for who he is. To love and trust or believe in someone is the core of any relationship. It's that solid foundation of marriage, of any friendship, in any relationship. And it is the core of your relationship in Christ. These believers, they loved and believed in Christ. And they had a relationship with Him. And we need to have a relationship with Him. You cannot have a relationship with anyone greater. He has known you since before the foundations of the world. He died on a cross for your sins. He gave you life. Protected you. Provided for your every need. He gave you faith to believe. He regenerated you. He shepherded you. And sanctified you. And eventually, He will glorify you. All of this, and much more, is why we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What comes out of us when we express our joy of Christ is the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are inexpressible. And they are full of glory. This is the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. I believe the joy inexpressible and full of glory is talking about the expression of those fruits of the Spirit, those gifts that have been given to us in our lives. When you are so full of joy and love, It is hard to explain. And we have seen that through our salvation, we have so many reasons to have joy in our life right now. And everything points to our eternal salvation in heaven. We need to focus our minds on that. We are only aliens scattered throughout this land, just like who Peter is writing to. Our real home, our real residence is yet to come. But we can enjoy it now. And we can reflect on our protected inheritance 
and all of the glorious things to come. And we can have joy in trials and the perfecting and the growing of our faith and knowing that we are secure in Christ. And through our faith and the works that it produces, we will be preparing for Christ to profess his stamp of approval on all of us. And right now, we can share in our intimate fellowship with Christ, growing in our joy every day, and looking forward to the revelation of Christ. If you struggle to find joy in Christ or struggle with the assurance of your salvation, come and talk to one of the elders. We'd love to help you through that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing of this precious letter of Peter who went through so many of the ups and downs in his Christian life, yet he persevered to the end. It is an encouragement to us who also have struggles in life, but it shows us where our joy comes from. You are the source of all joy, and we look forward to being filled to overflowing in the internal inheritance that we have waiting for us in heaven. Help us to rejoice in our life to come right now. To have a heavenly mindset in all aspects of our life, even our trials, so that we can be a testimony of the grace of Christ to the world around us. And in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.